So when the angel Gabriel shows up, Mary is stirred up. We've been talking about this over the last number of weeks. But by the end, she is hopeful and filled with joy. And he makes the statement to her, do not be afraid, and then gives several statements that help her. And so uh, as we find ourselves in the story uh, today, we find a Mary who is hopeful because she has found favor with God, because uh, she's giving birth to a child and she'll call him Jesus, because he will be the son of the Most High God, because he will uh, have the throne of his father David, and because his kingdom will last forever. But there's one more thing, and it's not any small thing. Uh, There's an elephant in the room, uh, as it were. And that is, as hopeful as she can be, how on earth is this ever going to happen? Because she's a virgin. She can't have a child. And it's this final statement from Gabriel that we want to look at today as we wrap up this Do Not Be Afraid series that gives her that final oomph of hope and joy. He says, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. What must have been running through her head as this response to her questions about her virginity and how could she give birth to a child, uh, this response that the angel Gabriel gives, what must have been going through her mind? And yet, as a first century Jewish woman, she would have understood and believed this truth about God. They would have talked and said things like this often, that nothing is impossible with Yahweh, with our God. It was really based in two realities of who God was and what God had done. That is that God is a creator God, and that God is a covenant God. And those two things wrapped together speak about the action and the character of God and demonstrate that, in fact, nothing is impossible with this God. Maybe she was thinking about statements from the prophets or from the heroes of the faith. Maybe even she was thinking about this statement from the prophet Jeremiah. And this statement has given me hope in the midst of this difficult season of life we call 2020. Uh, This statement also came to mind initially uh, several months back when a member of our church was going through a difficult time. Uh, And as I was praying for that person, uh, this passage of scripture came to my mind and I committed to pray it for that person uh, daily and regularly and did. Uh, the text uh, of this passage from the prophet Jeremiah is significant. So can I read this to you? Jeremiah uh, chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. When the prophet Jeremiah records those words, this is his prayer back to God uh, because God has asked him to do something really challenging and difficult. 
Uh, he is a messenger to the king and to the people that they're about to go into exile. In fact, the armies are right up against Jerusalem. They're building their, their siege mounds and laying siege to Jerusalem. And he has already told the king that this isn't going to end well for Israel. They will be defeated and the city will be destroyed. And then in chapter 32, God asked Jeremiah to do something crazy. He says, go and buy a property from your nephew. Now, when the word on the, on the ground is destruction and exile, not too many people are investing in real estate. <laughs> and yet Jeremiah does this according to God's request. Why? Because he believes that with God, nothing is impossible. That God is going to restore his people. That the, the mighty God who created the heavens and the earth with his outstretched arm, this creator God, uh, can do anything. And this covenant God will reestablish his covenant with his people. That is, Jeremiah will return from exile and that land will once again be his. Maybe this is running through Mary's mind. The prophet Jeremiah and the, the witness of the Old Testament speak to this reality. That with God nothing is impossible. And this refers to his creation, creation uh, and it refers to his covenant nature. That God is the creator. When we speak of that, we speak of uh, what theologians say is ex nihilo creation. That is that we believe, and it is orthodox Christian faith, that God created the world out of nothing. He didn't come upon a semi-created world and put finishing touches on it. And what's more, it says that we believe that he, he spoke it into existence. That his power is so great that by his spoken word, life springs. Now just exactly how he dotted the I's and crossed the T's, exactly what goes into all of that creation, there are certainly debates over. And that's not our purpose today. Rather, our purpose is to, to settle uh, or to situate the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God within the storyline of creation. That is, if we serve a God who creates the world out of nothing and who speaks it into existence, then surely he can do all things. And this is Mary's line of thinking. And Jeremiah's line of thinking. And even more, he's not just the originator of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. Do you believe this, church? We are not deists, right? We do not believe that God created the world, turned the wind-up stick, and then has hands off ever since, and everything is just playing out how it will. No, we believe in a God who is active within his creation. That is that he is a sustainer of his creation, not just an originator of his creation. And that he exerts power over the created world. We see this even in the miracles of Jesus and constantly throughout the Old Testament where the created world is at times stopped in its tracks because God again speaks. This is our God, the creator and sustainer of all things. And if this is true, then nothing is impossible for him. 
not even a barren womb or the womb of a virgin, not even the struggles that you find yourself amidst in this season of life. Do you get hope from that? Nothing is impossible with God. But it's not just creation, it's also covenant, right? Because uh, if we learn anything about God from the Old Testament, it's that these two narratives, creation and covenant, drive everything that God is doing. And his covenant nature is that it is his desire to not just create the world, but to live in harmony with it. That God would be the God of his creation, and that, that as creation, he would be our God, and that we would dwell with him together forever. This is God's covenant. And he makes this covenant pretty famously with a guy named Abraham. Do you remember this? And God demonstrates his power in this covenant relationship from that point forward. He says, I'll be your God. I'll take care of you. I'll bless you. You'll be my people. There are going to be hiccups along the way. But this is going to depend on me, not on you. Do you remember that that moment where God ratifies the covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis? The way a covenant would be ratified in those days is you would make a sacrifice. And you would... Uh, split the sacrifice in two, and together, hand in hand, you would walk through that sacrifice, saying, by the blood of these animals, and in essence, if I don't do good on this covenant, it's what happened to them should happen to me. Uh, I, I commit myself to this covenant, and that's how covenants were ratified. So God is ready to do this with Abraham. The sacrifice is made. And they're going to walk through the sacrifice together. And then God does something fascinating. Do you remember this? He causes a deep sleep to fall over Abraham. And then he alone walks through the sacrifice. Why is that so important? Because he's saying that the covenant is not dependent upon creation or Abraham or you or me. It's dependent upon him. And in his power, he will keep it. So that even when things don't seem like they're going so swiftly, it's the power of God that the people of God call upon. For instance, in Egypt, 400 years of brick making, slaves in Egypt not living in the blessing of the land. They call on the power of God. God hears his people and he moves towards them. Do you remember the power of God on display in the book of Exodus? Plagues on Egypt, provision on Israel through the, the blood smeared uh, over the doorpost, deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Pharaoh allows them to go. And then the preservation again of Israel when Pharaoh uh, presses against them with his armies in the Red Sea. And then provision for Israel through the wilderness, manna and quail and, and, and water provided for his people. This was a defining moment for Israel that the creator God who acted in power to create also acts in power to keep his covenant. So significant that when uh, Jeremiah is praying the prayer I read to you earlier in Jeremiah 32. He references what God did in Egypt. And then we look at the situation of Israel that is recorded in Jeremiah. About to head off into exile. Not so good. And yet Jeremiah 
is acting in a way that is analogous with the power of God. He's going to buy land because he knows that God in his power will again deliver his people and that it won't be dependent upon him, but it will be dependent upon God. It's this covenant and creation narrative that we speak of when we say that with God nothing is impossible. And it's this covenant and creation narrative that is in Mary's head when she's hearing these words and perhaps reflecting back upon Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah chapter 32. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. See, we serve a God who keeps his promises. What he tells us will be, will be. And we see again through the story of Mary that God does this, that he acts in power on behalf of his people. It's important to pause and say something here. God's power is always demonstrated towards these two ends, creation and covenant. Creation and covenant. That is, that God is not in the business of putting on uh, displays, right? He's not selling tickets for grand displays for people to just come and see. He's acting in, in creation narrative and in covenant narrative. Now through Jesus, new creation and, and, and new covenant languages. He's acting in power towards those things. So let me ask you something. Today in the midst of the struggle of 2020, or in the midst of the season of life that you happen to find yourself in now, where's your hope? Do you find your hope in a God with whom nothing is impossible? Or have you placed your hope in other things? Yourself, politics, economy, material things, vocational things, a perception of God rather than God himself? For many of us, at times, it is easy to lose hope in God because he's not producing for us, right? That is, yeah, we talk about with God, nothing's impossible, and yet it seems like God's not doing anything for me. But when we think about God in those terms, we actually have a great misperception about who God is. Because God is not in the business of Uh, being a genie. We rub the lamp and he gives us what we ask for. He's in the business of demonstrating his power to keep his covenant and to act in new creation. That's our God. Have you lost hope in him because you've misconstrued who he actually is? Some cosmic genie that ought to be giving you whatever you ask for? Or are you finding true hope in the God who time after time has stepped forward, not on the merit of people, but on the merit of his character, and rescued his people and reestablished them in power? With God, nothing is impossible. But the angel doesn't stop there, does he, with Mary? It's not just about God's power to being demonstrated, though that's true. It's also about how God is going to empower her. 
God's power on display, for sure, but also that God is going to empower her. And he empowers her in two significant ways, right? He's empowering her towards faith, towards belief, towards trust in his power. He does it in, t- in two particular ways. The first way is really significant. It's the Holy Spirit. He said, Gabriel says, the, the Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive a child. That's how this is going to happen. It's going to be incredibly miraculous and divine. But you're not going to have to do it by yourself, right? You don't have to go home and conjure up a plan, figure out how you're going to make this thing that God said happen. He's going to do it. And he's going to do it by empowering you with the Spirit. And then secondarily, he empowers the faith of Mary through what I'll call the testimony of the saints. But in particular, we're talking here about Elizabeth. Because the angel says to Mary, look at your cousin uh, Elizabeth. She was barren. She couldn't have kids, but she's already six months pregnant. And of course, we know from the story that as soon as this conversation with the angel is done, Mary's going right to Elizabeth. She wants to see it for herself. And who blames her? God intended her to do that. That's why he gave her this message about what he had done through Elizabeth. Because he wanted to use the testimony of the saints, the testimony of Elizabeth, in order to empower and embolden the faith of Mary. And so he's doing that in this very moment. God not simply asking us to blindly trust in his demonstrations of power, though he rightly could, because he has shown us just how powerful he is. Instead, in his kindness and in his goodness, empowering Mary, and I want to suggest here in these next few moments, empowering us through the work of the Spirit and through the testimony of the saints. In the very same way that God empowered Mary, he empowers us with his Spirit. In fact, anyone who has believed the gospel, who has believed in Jesus, possesses the Spirit. That's not yours to use how you want, but it's the word we use for indwelling. That is that the Spirit comes to live in you. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about this at length. That the presence of the Spirit in you, the indwelling of the Spirit in you, is what he calls a down payment of the future kingdom life. Remember last uh, Christmas Eve when we talked about the already not yet kingdom of God? We taste it in part, but not in its fullness. One of the ways and the means by which we taste it in part is the presence of the Spirit in our lives. It's a down payment for that future uh, kingdom that Jesus will deliver. And so it's how we access the promises of God through the work of the Spirit in our life. So if you've believed in Jesus, if you have received him, if you've called him both Savior and Lord, if you've confessed your sins uh, and believed the gospel, then the Spirit is in you, God says. And we are constantly experiencing this Emmanuel reality that was was uh, announced at the very first Christmas, that God dwells with us. And so in the very same way that God spoke to Mary about the Spirit would be on her, so too the Spirit is on and with and in us. And in the same way it was empowering, the Spirit was empowering and emboldening the faith of Mary and enabling the work of God through her, so too the Spirit does that with us. 
so that the Spirit uh, is always working towards making much of Jesus and pushing his kingdom forward. The adoration of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus, and, and pushing the kingdom of God forward. Jesus, when speaking about the Holy Spirit to his disciples, says that when he comes, he will glorify me. The chief role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus, to glorify Jesus. And he also tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, the Spirit will come on you in power and you will be my witnesses. Now what's fascinating about Jesus' testimony uh, and prophetic words to the disciples is it sounds an awful lot like the angel Gabriel's words to Mary. Jesus said, you're going to be my, my, my witnesses everywhere. And the disciples are probably like, how are we going to do that? Look at us. We're just regular people. And in the same way that Gabriel answered Mary's uncertainty, Jesus answers the disciples' uncertainty. Here's how. Not in your own efforts, not in your own strategy. The Spirit's going to come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that that Acts starts out that way and Luke starts out this way because Luke and Acts are two parts of one book all written by Luke and so he's showing that in the same way that Jesus came the church goes right and so it is for us the indwelling of the Spirit means the Spirit continues in our midst every single moment of every single day to make much of Jesus and to push us forward in mission that's what the Spirit does. And so Jesus says lots about the Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. He'll guide us in all truth. He won't speak uh, of his own accord, but he'll speak the very words of God to us. He will testify about Jesus to us. He will remind us the things that Jesus has said. In other words, the Spirit is going to constantly be proclaiming the gospel to us and correcting us and realigning us and recentering us. And this happens for our ability to live the life that God calls us to. And Paul therefore prays for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3 in this very way, that the Spirit might empower them in the way they live. And this is true also because in the same way that Mary would find spiritual warfare throughout her life, and certainly in these early days of the birth of Jesus. Remember that Herod is trying to kill Jesus, and they have to escape to Egypt, and all kinds of things are going on. In the same way, Paul reminds us that there is spiritual warfare going on all the time in and around us. And the Spirit is fighting that warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes about this, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this, this world, right? This spiritual thing going on. And so the Spirit is empowering us for that battle. Not leaving it up to ourselves to figure out how to live this life. Not leaving it up to our own power to try to really work hard at being moral and good people. No, the Spirit comes on us in power and enables it. And likewise, enables us to live in mission for God. So how does the Spirit do this? How does this work? We talked a little bit about it. That he makes much of Jesus, proclaims the gospel, he pushes us towards mission. Those are kind of internal realities. But two more things that are critical here uh, and important for us to remember, and there are probably more than this. 
A third way the Spirit works is through other people, right? Through other believers. Because if the Spirit is doing that in us, He's also doing that in them. And so then the the ministry of other people through their giftedness comes from the Spirit, through their testimonies comes through the Spirit, through their ministry comes through the Spirit, is to embolden us in our Christian life and to embolden us in our Christian mission. So the Spirit uses other people through His power, to encourage, empower, and enable us. And then also sometimes miraculously, right? And here's where we go, well, wait a minute. I don't know. I've not seen any miraculous things. And, and I understand. Uh, and I concur in many ways. But I think it's because we perceive things uh, in a very modern scientific way. And so we just kind of poo-poo <laughs> the miraculous move of the Spirit sometimes. Let me say something to you. If this great miracle of the Spirit that we celebrate at Christmas was to embed Jesus within Mary, then is it not true that our salvation is just as great a miracle? In our salvation, the Spirit embeds Jesus within us. And the scripture is careful to tell us we don't come up with that on our own. God seeks us first. It's his grace by which we are saved. Sometimes it's really simple to overlook our conversion and our salvation stories, as simple or as profound as they might be, and lead them to be sort of logical things. When in fact they are miraculous, and we should celebrate them in that way. If the arrival of Jesus at the first Christmas is miraculous, then the arrival and embrace of Jesus in your heart is just as miraculous. Don't you see it? God is doing miracles in your midst. And then likewise, sometimes we can uh, rationalize away the move of God in our midst. It's simple to say, well, that could have happened any number of ways, or that was coincidence, or who knows. I remember one time I was praying uh, with my dad, um, he'd had some test results, and um, the test results could have been that he maybe he had cancer, uh, but it also could have meant that maybe he was dehydrated, something as simple as that. And we prayed for him. I remember on my uh, front porch, uh, Rach and I, we laid hands on him, my mom, we prayed for him, we prayed for God's miraculous healing, um, and he went home and he had the test again. And the test came back normal. Uh, did God do something miraculous? He very well may have. Or maybe Dad was dehydrated and he drank more water. I don't know. But somehow in my brain, my natural, logical self goes to, well, he just was dehydrated. And so he needed to drink more. Right? We sort of push the move of God away sometimes. And yet... God still moves in miraculous ways. And he empowers us through his miraculous move and through his spirit. And we praise God for that. Aren't you so grateful for the kindness of God of giving us his spirit to guide us every single day? Jesus said something profound to his disciples. He said, listen, it's better for me to go away so the spirit can come. Uh, and those seem like bizarre words. But the truth is, he was exactly right. Because... With the presence of Jesus, the presence of God was confined to one 
human flesh. But with his resurrection and the distribution of the Spirit of God, God is no longer confined. And now he is where we are. And so, as God is calling you, uh, and as you are attempting to live for God in the midst of struggle or in the midst of ease, take heart that he gives you his Spirit to empower you in faith but also that he gives you the testimony of the saints, right? I love Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about all these great men and women of faith. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, he tells us, he exhorts us as believers to run this Christian, this race called the Christian life uh, with passion and perseverance. And he tells us to look at those who have gone before us and who walk alongside us and to use their testimony as impetus for faith right? a great cloud of witnesses he calls them and certainly that great cloud of witnesses was demonstrated in Hebrews chapter 11 and certainly it includes many more from the pages of scripture but it also includes the great Stories from the history of the church over these last 2,000 years. And it also calls forth the great stories of those who are walking side by side with us uh, in this modern day. In other words, the Christian faith was always meant to be communal and never meant to be individually experienced. And a big reason for that was a means by which God was going to spur us on is through what he's doing in and through other people. So I ask you, who is your great cloud of witnesses? For Mary, sure, it was Jeremiah. Maybe she was thinking about him. And sure, it was Moses and what God did in Egypt. And sure, it was Adam and Eve and the great stories of creation. But it was also a very contemporary person, Elizabeth. She went right to Elizabeth. And undoubtedly, she celebrated when she saw just how pregnant Elizabeth was. But also, Elizabeth spoke truth to her and helped her understand and, and process this news that Gabriel gave to her. And together, faith rose in both of them. That's how the Christian life is supposed to function. Not you working it out on yourself, uh, behind in yourself behind closed doors somewhere, but in tandem, in process, in community, a big part of the reason we exist as a local church is to embolden the faith of each other through the testimony of what God is doing. And so if you're not engaged, and listen, I get it, pandemic and quarantine leads to disengagement, right? But that's not a good enough excuse because your faith will fade if you're disengaged, right? We see that constantly throughout Scripture. In fact, we see it uh, pretty famously in one of the Psalms that many of us know. It's, As the deer pants for the water, uh, there's a soul that is, is parched, is longing for God, but God seems far. And if you read that Psalm uh, intently, you'll find out one of the reasons for that, a significant reason for that, is this person has broken from the regular connection to the people of God. And it always, 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 always leads to a reduction of faith and a distance from God. 
Is God intended for us to do this together? And so I, let me call you as prophetically as I can to re-engage. I get it. If it has to be distanced for a while, we understand that. And we've, we've made means by which you can do that. But engage Engage regularly in our Sunday morning gatherings. Let your presence be known and testify to what God is doing in your midst. And be encouraged by what God is doing amongst others. Engage in a community group, an even more intimate space uh, or, or social space where people can gather together and tell these stories and be encouraged in faith and work through things together. As the pandemic begins to ease, we pray in 2021, it's our intention to begin rolling out even smaller discipleship-oriented gatherings, uh, maybe three or four people that are gathering together to, to grow and be transformed in their faith uh, and to, to get victory over the struggles that they're having. Another great way for you to engage uh, and engage in the testimony of the saints in order to have your faith be emboldened. Please, I beg you to engage. Your faith depends upon it, and so does mine. When this message was over from the angel Gabriel, Mary didn't just sit there and try to figure it out on her own. She didn't come up with a strategy of her own. She went running for Elizabeth. And when she heard and saw what God was doing in Elizabeth... Married together with, with, with what God had called her to do and be, her faith soared exponentially. Because this is how faith grows. So what about us, church? As we conclude this whole series, do not be afraid. Maybe you're not afraid. Maybe your emotions aren't even stirred up. But in this series, I hope that we have seen what God has done in Jesus. That we have found favor with God. That he's meeting us in the midst of storms, in the midst of our wandering in the desert. And that he has given us Jesus, a child like Samson who will win great victories and a leader like Joshua who will lead us into the land of blessing. And that he is the Son of God, both in his Messiahship and in his very nature, divine. And that he has brought a kingdom like David's, righteousness and justice and peace. And though this kingdom will last forever, we taste it only in part now, we wait for the rest of it when Jesus comes again. But we persevere because of what we taste. And we reconnect to our purpose as agents of this kingdom to allow the world to taste it in part too. And as we engage in this mission that will have plenty of ups and plenty of downs, plenty of struggles and plenty of breakthroughs, we are reminded that with God, nothing is impossible. Both because God has demonstrated and will demonstrate his power as creator and as covenant God. 
but also because God empowers us in our faith through the work of his spirit. Praise God for that. And through the testimony of his saints. We make much of Jesus together in what he has done and in so doing are empowered in faith. I pray with you.